When we think of the law, in both its purpose and its practice, we often think of persuasive arguments, enveloped in reason, rhetoric, and logic. We think facts and hard evidence, testimony of flesh and blood witnesses, and zero tolerance for nonsense. But the law is a mysterious body, and it exists solely to respond to the happenings of society. And in doing so, it often becomes a servant to its whims. In this podcast, we explore extraordinary cases with spiritual or otherwise bizarre themes, proving that fact is truly stranger than fiction. Sometimes there are trials. Other times there are trials by ordeal. Envision a city where the sum of its parts struggle against one another to establish their own uniqueness and variety while remaining harmonized under its many layers of identity and history. If you do, you'll find yourself in New Orleans. More specifically, where the battle for novelty is most apparent, the French Quarter. You can stroll past the unmistakable sights of period architecture, layered on top of one another in such a way its age could be determined like the rings of a tree. You can take in the wafting scents of fresh beignets, chicory coffee, and various discards of waste left over from the night before. You can hear street vendors pitching their wares and services, musicians and fortune tellers intermingling all hours of the day and well into the night. New Orleans is vibrant and bizarre, welcoming all and rejecting none and offering endless space to unleash and capitalize on your wildest imaginations. It is a complex city, easily the most complex city in America. And it is here, in the bustling French Quarter, a city within a city, that our defendant presides. But he did not start there, and the story of how he came to be there is no less fantastical and bizarre than the city itself. This is a story of a witch and a warlock, rumored to be engaged in a veritable cage match of hexes and spiritual warfare that started with a grimoire and ended in a courtroom. My name is Sarah Arena, and this is Trial by Ordeal. Like I mentioned in the beginning, our story doesn't begin in New Orleans with a he. It just ends there. No, our story begins in Salem, Massachusetts, with a she. And that she is Lori Cabot. Lori, now 84, has been a practicing witch since childhood. In the mid-1950s, Lori was a struggling single mother and found it increasingly difficult to afford her independence in the big city of Boston. So a friend recommended they pull their resources and find a new home in the suburbs. It was an offer Lori couldn't possibly refuse, but there was one condition, anywhere but Salem. It's easy for us to think of Salem as it is now, as the way it's always been. But before Salem was known as the Witch City, it was a city known for witches. The Salem Witch Trials left a permanent scar on the city of Salem, and it was all but assumed a practicing witch would hardly be welcome there. But, as fate would have it, the perfect apartment opened up in Salem, and Lori reluctantly relocated there. 
At first, she concealed her identity. But as time wore on and the cultural landscape of America shifted, Lori found it easier to express herself. The 60s ushered in a revival of spiritualism and an interest in occult practices. A friendlier time for somebody like Lori. So she began to wear pentagrams and black shawls and all the finery becoming of a genuine witch. She was able to blend in, likely being mistaken for a hippie, but she was still shy about her religious practices and she didn't openly admit to being a Wiccan. That all changed the day Molly Boo, Lori's black cat, got stuck in a tree outside of her apartment. She tried in vain to coax Molly Boo down, but she refused. So Lori contacted the fire department, the police, and animal control, all of which assured her Molly Boo would come down on her own accord and not to worry. For three days, Molly Boo remained in the tree. Lori was becoming frantic. The weather was getting bad, and Molly Boo was likely becoming dehydrated. Desperate to get her down, Lori came up with a plan. She would call the local newspaper and tell them she was a witch, and that her familiar, Molly Boo, was stuck in a tree. Naturally intrigued, a reporter showed up shortly after the call, along with the mayor and the fire department. Molly Boo was saved, and Lori's true identity was revealed to the community. Following the rescue, Lori garnered media attention and saw an opportunity. So she opened the first witch shop in Salem and set out to educate the public on Wiccan spiritual practices. Lori wanted to dispel the stigmas attached to witches, to legitimize Wicca and enable other witches to practice openly in absence of fear or ridicule. Scores of witches embarked on pilgrimages to Salem to meet Lori, to open up their own stores peddle their own wands and potions, and speak openly and freely about their beliefs. Lori was deeply respected and revered. She inadvertently broke ground on Witch City and permanently changed its dynamics, both economic and social. Lori Cabot invented modern Salem, but it wouldn't be enough to protect her. The Wiccan community possesses within it two very distinct sides. One side is open and inclusive, and it welcomes all who have good intentions and that are willing to adhere to some simple rules regarding an oath to do no harm, to resist the temptation to manipulate the divine will for destructive purposes, and to regard every living thing, plant or animal, with the utmost respect. But the other side can be wrought with jealousy, competition, and politics, which against which jockeying for notoriety and position to prove who is more powerful, more skilled, more capable of influencing the natural elements. But the negative attributes of Wicca are not necessarily inherent in the practice of it. However, it is inherent in human nature, and it becomes amplified with the introduction of commerce. And because Wicca is often a religion for hire, a trade that is bought and sold, where there is commerce, cutthroat competition will follow. Decades after Lori became firmly rooted in Salem, another area local arrived on the Wiccan scene with a fresh perspective and some revolutionary ideas. According to his website, Christian Day is a modern-day warlock. He's a practitioner of the ancient arts of witchcraft. 
Christian represented the next generation of Wiccan practitioners, one that understood the burgeoning digital age and knew how to capitalize on it. In 1995, Christian founded SalemTarot.com, a site devoted to tarot and networking within the Wiccan community, but it also showed off Christian's web marketing skills. It was clear that Christian saw the endless array of business opportunities his passion for the occult held, and he wasn't shy about exercising his considerable skills to build an empire doing it. The same year he broke digital ground on SalemTarot.com, he was initiated into a local coven by his close friend Sean. Sean and Christian endeavored to revive Salem's magical reputation and defended against what they described as the powers that be from exercising the practice from the famous witch city. Together, they created the Festival of the Dead and began offering ghost tours in Salem. The two worked together to magnify Salem's tourism potential and reacquaint the city with the old traditions of witchcraft. Sadly, by 2007, Christian's best friend and business partner, Sean, passed away. But by 2008, Christian managed to open his first brick-and-mortar witch shop in Salem, named Hex. It was branded as an old-world witchery, and it was there he sold his heavily branded candles, apothecary, and other magical supplements. But Christian didn't stop there. In 2010, he opened a second shop named Omen. He was well on his way to franchising Witch City, a move that would inevitably create dissension in the ranks. Christian Day advertises himself as somewhat of a purist. He's offended by Harry Potter and sparkly vampires, and those who generally view Wicca as a toy. But inexplicably, he detests the commercialization of magic, even as he himself has commercialized his craft to tourists. Perhaps he never intended to create this caricature of witchcraft. Perhaps he intended, like Lori Cabot did when she first came to Salem, to remove the sharp edges and taboo from it. Or perhaps his intention was to make money, but maintain his image as a purist by excoriating the hobbyist. Regardless of his intentions, he would draw steep criticism from his peers, and his reputation as a serious practitioner would be scrutinized time and time again. By this time, Lori Cabot was the grand dame of witchcraft. And of course, Christian, who was locked in a constant battle to legitimize himself, would seek an alliance with Lori. Any alliance between the two would be mutually beneficial, though. Two legends conjoining forces to work towards a common goal. The pair had once been described as inseparable by mutual friends. When asked about Christian's authenticity, Lori told the Boston Globe, There's a lot of people who will say he's too commercial, but they said the same thing about me. But to teach the public, you have to be visible. Being the most visible witch is the major goal. The witches and warlocks of Salem have an often misunderstood depth and complexity between them. Rivalry and intrigue, hex wars and harassment all take place regularly in a small community of witches in Salem. Lori Cabot was once accused of threatening to shoot a fellow Wiccan, Janet Andrews, in a landlord-tenant dispute. Christian Day was accused of making threatening phone calls to Lori's daughter, Jody. And other members of the Wiccan community have admitted to assaulting one another, sabotaging each other's businesses through magical and material means. They would fight 
and makeup and continue to conduct business as usual. The bow often was bending, but rarely did it break. Until one day it did. Exactly what went wrong between Lori Cabot and Christian Day is a matter of opinion. But one thing is clear. There are no wholly innocent parties. Lori came to work for Christian at Hex as a tarot reader. And with Lori being one of the most famous witches in Salem, the value of hosting Lori was surely not lost on Christian's impeccable business instincts. Sometime after working for Christian, Lori decided to leave to open her own witch shop. And according to Christian, poached three of his employees in the process. It was about this time Lori would come to accuse Christian of making harassing phone calls in the middle of the night to her, posting defamatory remarks about her on his social media, and even attempt to intimidate her through rumors of casting nefarious hexes on her and her business. All of this would culminate into a court skirmish that would wound the lives and reputations of everybody involved. Christian would say it was a business dispute. Lori would call it harassment. But the events that led to the moment that Lori Cabot stood at a podium in a small Massachusetts courtroom, dressed all in black and visibly emotional, remain unclear. She was seeking a simple injunction against Christian, barring him from contacting her. In most instances, for a judge to grant an injunction, the petitioner must convince the court they have a reason to believe that they are in imminent danger. But by 2015, Christian was living in New Orleans, some 1,200 miles away. Christian adamantly denied the harsher allegations and softened the context of the rest. He was ready to defend himself and his reputation. But the day of the hearing, Christian's attorney fell ill and was unable to attend the proceedings. And with no more allowances for continuance, Christian was made to hire an attorney right there at the courthouse. The case had drawn considerable local media attention. Reporters and cameramen spectated while Christian struggled to pivot his strategy and manage the optics of defending himself against an emotional elderly woman as the media anxiously awaited to capture him in a light that would effortlessly enforce Lori's case against him. Christian declined to speak in his own defense, while his lawyer argued that Lori was a public figure and did not enjoy the same protections as a private citizen. By the end, Lori was granted the protection order and the parties adjourned. On the courtroom steps, Christian broke his silence. He said he was disappointed that a simple business dispute came to this, while Lori was feeling vindicated and she declared victory not only for herself, but for all women. The media treated the case as an opportunistic novelty the hearing was set just three days before Halloween, a fact that rang suspicious for some, but in reality, neither party would have had the opportunity to exhibit a reasonable amount of control over the scheduling. Today, it remains a secret what truly transpired between Lori Cabot and Christian Day. But to the untrained eye, or unfamiliar outsider of the Wiccan community, it may appear as fractured and dysfunctional. And perhaps this is not a totally unreasonable conclusion. The Salem Courthouse has weighed in on many disputes erupting from the Wiccan community over the decades. Claims of harassment, physical violence, and business disputes have come before the court seeking resolution time and time again. 
There is something deeper, something less superficial, that demands attention but receives little consideration. They are passionate about their practice. And as a Catholic mystic and notable poet, Cleo Gibran once said, passion unattended is a flame that burns to its own destruction. Today it would appear that time and distance has healed the wounds between Christian and Lori. Christian posts fondly about Lori occasionally on his social media, attributing his development and success to her. He lives in New Orleans now, taking on the establishment and holding festivals and continuing to practice his craft. Lori Cabot also continues to reside in Salem, though her shop is closed and now she is largely confined to her apartment due to health issues. She continues to be one of the most notable and celebrated witches of the modern era. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of Trial by Ordeal. If you're interested to learn more about Lori Cabot, Christian Day, or his stores Hex and Omen, you can visit lauricabot.com or hexwitch.com. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Arena. Join me again next week as we explore the limits of a murder defense in the Devil Made Me Do It trial.